This morning we're continuing with a series considering how we might be faithful followers of Jesus Christ in our families and in this wider church family that we find ourselves part of. So we started a couple of weeks ago thinking about uh, how God's family is our true first family, how it has a, a priority even over our biological families, but actually that it's the, the place where our biological families will, will find their greatest meaning and fulfillment. And then last week, we were thinking together uh, about the the importance of, of single people in the family of God. They are very much a, a part of the family here and in fact have a, uh, for Jesus and Paul, uh, sometimes have a superior calling. So we want to recognize and dignify single people in our church family. This morning we're going to think specifically about marriage. Until about 60 years ago, there was nothing very distinctive about if we talked about a, a Christian view of marriage and the view of marriage in general. And the reason for that was because lifelong marriages were the norm in most Western societies. But that's been changing for quite some time now. We live in a world that no longer expects one man and one woman uh, to be faithfully married for a lifetime. Uh, sadly, divorce has become a common part of life. At this point, I might have shared some statistics with you uh, showing how divorce rates have risen, the increasing prevalence of divorce in recent decades in Britain, but I've chosen not to. Because when we talk about divorce, statistics simply don't tell the whole story. They don't even begin to tell the human story. Many of us here this morning are affected by divorce. Every divorce statistic speaks for a broken home and in many cases broken families, broken lives, not to mention countless broken hearts. I want to be careful this morning not to pass judgment on a society, but nor, nor to pass judgment on those who've been divorced. I certainly don't want to give the impression uh, this is something the church might have done historically, that divorce is something that happens out there um, and doesn't happen in here. The reality is that divorce affects us in the church almost to the same degree as it affects households outside of the church. The, the divorce rates in churches are often not very different than the divorce rates in wider society. Over the years, Claire and I have become painfully aware of this is the marriage of some of our best friends have uh, crumbled right before our very eyes. In our younger days, we would never have expected that. In some cases, we absolutely couldn't have predicted it, but it's happened. Perhaps it's, it's happened near you or it's happened to you. This morning I want to think with you not about divorce but about marriage. And before we set off, I want to tell you what kind of a journey it's going to be. It's, we're not going on a self-help journey. I won't be sharing tips or techniques about how to improve your marriage with date nights or learning your love languages or anything like that. Having said that, I heard a marriage tip 
quite recently that I thought I'd share with you just to put a smile on your face. If you want heaven at 11, you'd better start at 7. That was a marriage tip that somebody shared with me recently. Folks, if that's good advice for you, take it to heart. Run with it. It might be something you'll thank me for in the weeks to come. But that's not what we're going to be talking about here today. We don't need self-help. We need God's help. We're not going to be on a self-help journey, nor are we going to resort to legalism. I'm not going to beat you over the head this morning with rules from the Bible or elsewhere telling you what you should do in your marriages. Why not? Because we've known the rules and we've had the rules. We've known that we're supposed to stay in our marriages and we've struggled with the reality. We don't need more rules. We need a different heart. Now that I've told you what we're not going to do, let me tell you what we are going to do. We're going to go back to God's word. We're going to discover what's distinctive about the Christian view of marriage. And I want to invite you today to to grab hold of that. This distinctive biblical view of marriage. If you're married, that's going to help you. That'll reinforce your marriage against forces that would undermine it. And if you're not married, it'll give you a vision for marriage that'll stand you in good stead should you ever consider marriage in the future. And it'll certainly help us all to understand and better support uh, marriages in our church family. I'm going to talk about three things. Why marriages fail, what makes Christian marriage different, and how this church family could help marriages succeed. Okay. So why do marriages fail? People don't go to their wedding day anticipating failure, and yet nearly half of the marriages in the UK these days fail. Why are Christian marriages failing as much or nearly as much as other marriages? Well, let me begin by pointing out two different types of marriage, two views of marriage I'll begin with the, the biblical view of marriage and, and one that would have been held in wider society, actually, uh, up until quite recently. I'll call it covenant faithfulness. It's based on a promise. A man and a woman make a promise to one another before their witnesses and before God that they'll be faithful to one another until their death. We need to think for a moment about that. Not take it for granted. Think about it. Covenants are risky. There are no qualifications or reservations. In fact, the traditional marriage vows explicitly rule out get-out clauses. The husband and the wife promise to love one another for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death us do part. Isn't that quite something? Sounds terrifying to our modern commitment-phobic ears. For this kind of marriage to succeed, 
this, this man and woman, they're going to need to rely on things beyond themselves. They're going to need God's help, the help of the Christian community. They're going to need to learn the power of forgiveness and things like that. A marriage, friends, is a miracle. Make no mistake about that. While it sounds challenging to us nowadays, it still sounds familiar and obvious to us, particularly if we've grown up in the church. That's the the covenant faithfulness. That's the only biblical view of marriage. I want to talk for a moment now about a different view of marriage. If, If we don't understand this, we won't understand why so many marriages fail. And we won't understand the the weak ground that we stand on as we go into our marriages and as we try to stay in them. I'll call it contractual faithfulness. It's not based finally on a promise. It's based more on a calculation. Although we still have the traditional marriage ceremony and although we still use traditional marriage vows, The man and the woman agree here to be with one another and to be faithful to one another unless one or both of them finds a better option. This contract isn't risky like a covenant. It includes qualifications and reservations. In some cases now, marriages include prenuptial agreements outlining what's going to happen when this marriage fails. So there may be costs, losing a marriage may hurt, but it's a calculated risk for both parties. Friends, we need to be clear about these two views of marriage. We need to recognize the difference between them. And we need to be clear about another thing too. And that is that this contractual view of marriage, which I've just described, is among us. It's pervasive throughout our society. I hope you understand that. And it's increasingly pervasive in our churches. So here we have probably the main reasons why marriages are failing. Why Christian marriages fail nearly as much as as marriages of non-Christian people. Many Christians don't realize how fundamentally different the biblical view of marriage is the covenant view of marriage, to this contractual view of marriage that's all around us. Let me impress that on you this morning before we go any further. I said earlier this morning that I didn't want to judge either a culture where divorce happens or people who have found themselves in that circumstance. Let me say that despite my total commitment to the permanent covenant faithfulness that God calls us to and that scripture teaches, I understand that some marriages fall apart. I believe that there are circumstances when to dissolve a marriage is the lesser of two evils. What do you say to a wife who suffered at the hands of a chronically abusive husband? Hang in there until he ruins you entirely? What do you say to the husband whose wife has deserted him to be with a a different man or another woman? I know there's no one else there to be married to, but go ahead. 
stay in the marriage. What do we say to the teenagers who rushed into marriage because of an unwanted pregnancy, who have tried to stay together only to discover that they have absolutely nothing in common, that they're incompatible everywhere else except in bed? You've made your bed, now lie in it. Folks, I've seen situations where marriages have become destructive and occasions where divorce is necessary in the circumstances. That's part and parcel of the reality of living in a fallen, sinful world. But here's the thing. We must never allow these exceptions, these exceptional cases, even when they're legitimate, to become the rule. American writer Wendell Berry is characteristically wise on this subject. He says, the possibility of breaking a vow can tell us nothing about what is meant by making and keeping one. So trying to stay married by focusing all the time on the legitimate reasons for divorce is like trying to stay healthy while we're eating junk food or trying to stay, get rich while we sit on the sofa watching TV. Folks, the truth is that biblical or Christian marriage remains covenantal, even when we sometimes fall short of that ideal. So whenever two Christians set out on the adventure of married life, they must still make unconditional promises and mean them. We must do that in a society where others don't see it that way. We must do it in a society that is relentless in urging us to keep our options open. When Christian men and women marriage, marry, sorry, they say something else to one another before their witnesses and before God. They say, no, I will not keep my options open. I've made my choice. And it's you for better or worse, it's you. In richer and in poorer, it's you. In sickness and in health, it's you. Until death us do part, it's you. So we've thought about why marriages are failing in the culture and even in the church. We've slipped from a, covenant, a covenantal view of marriage to a contractual one. Now we come to our second question. What is it that's different or could be different about our Christian marriages? What hope do we have that we could live lives of covenant faithfulness rather than contractual convenience? Our hope's not in a Christian self-help industry that others don't have access to. Our hope's not in the rules that we have that the rest of society doesn't know about or ignores. Praise God, it's much, much deeper and richer than that. Our hope for our Christian marriages is based in our very identity as the people of God. We're people who worship the living God and we have a Savior whom we follow. We're learning to be faithful people. Here at Hamilton Road, we talk about becoming faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I've stressed that for you very often, what it means to become a follower of Jesus. We're an apprentice of his. Uh, we want to become like him. 
But notice the, the adverb in our sentence. We want to be faithful followers. Learning faithfulness will change how we live in every walk of life, but it's going to revolutionize our marriages. Let's come now, finally, to God's word and build a picture of covenant faithfulness. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. Page 186. Here we have Moses teaching the people, and he talks about God's relationship with his people, Israel, as if it were a marriage. We learn about how God sets his affection on them. He chooses them in love, but we learn too about God's ongoing faithfulness. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Why did God bring his people out of slavery in Egypt? Because of his covenant with Abram. Why did God bring them through the Red Sea? Because of his promises to be their God. Why did he bring them through the desert and into the promised land? Because he's endlessly faithful to the promises he makes. Why did God stick with them through century after century, through thick and through thin? Because he's unstintingly faithful. He never, ever breaks his promises. As it says, verse 9 he is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. What do you think that means? Do you think that means after a thousand generations he starts breaking his promises? No, it's a turn of phrase. He can't, he won't, he never breaks his promises. Folks, the story of Israel, this marriage of God to his people... Many of the prophets, particularly Hosea and Ezekiel, show us beautifully how God endures his enduring commitment to the covenant, these people that he's chosen. They're unfaithful time and time again. But even then, God doesn't keep his options open. He doesn't move away from Israel and choose a new bride. He sticks with them. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Remember what we're trying to do here. We're trying to answer the question, what's different about Christian marriage? And so far we've seen in Deuteronomy and through the prophets how God is eternally faithful in his marriage to his people. Turn with me quickly to Ephesians 5, page 1176. Paul is teaching about marriage, big chunk about marriage, says a few things. But what he does fundamentally is he makes a connection between the faithfulness of God on the one hand 
and the faithfulness he wants us to display in our marriages and the other. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Do you see what Paul's doing? The unfailing love of God for his people, the self-giving love of Christ for the church, this is the model. The only model for how a husband is to love his wife and a wife to love her husband. Although he doesn't mention it explicitly, Paul has clearly the cross of Jesus Christ in view. The cross is the place where fully and finally Jesus gave himself up for us. This is where he showed how he behaves in a marriage. While we're whoring around while we're running after everyone and anything else. In love, he gives himself for us. On the cross, he's faithful to his promise to have and to hold for better, for worse, for much, much worse in this case, for the worst of all, as he carries our sins as he suffers terribly the wrath of God, as he dies in our place, that we might be forgiven, restored, healed. Jesus Christ gave his life for us so that we might be his bride. And now, says Paul, that is how we live in our marriages. We're to learn to love each other with that same kind of loving, self-sacrificial faithfulness. I want you to notice how different this approach to marriage is to what you hear in the culture and what you might even hear in church. Paul's calling us to something far more challenging and far more meaningful. The other approaches, here's what they do. They address us as fundamentally unfaithful people and offers us some self-help and some rules and says, there it is, there's some self-help, there's some rules, have a go with those and see if you do any better in your marriage. Paul doesn't do that. He addresses us as fundamentally unfaithful people and says, learn the faithfulness of God your God expressed in the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. He says, become more like Jesus. Allow his spirit to grow in you the fruit of faithfulness. Become more like him, more like what you were made to be, the, the, a faithful person in the image of God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a better basis for our marriages? Paul's point in Ephesians 5 is that our marriages are to be the places where naturally unfaithful people like us are learning to display the very faithfulness of God. Love your wives, love your husbands, love them as Christ loved the church. Actually, whether we're married or not, we are to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Our lives are to be the places where the faithfulness 
of God is on display. Folks, I'm not naive to this. Faithfulness is not sexy in Britain in 2023. We live in a culture dominated by advertising and aspirational living. We're encouraged not to commit to anyone or anything. We're, we're encouraged to keep changing and keep open all the time. Actually, I don't know if it's ever dawned on you, capitalism depends upon it. How can the advertiser succeed if he can't dissatisfy you with your life as it currently is? New options present themselves. We're told that we're a mug if we don't take them. For so long, we've been urged to trade up, to trade up our cars and our phones, always looking for the better, newer model that our hearts are being formed to think the same way about our relationships. This model will do until a younger, more exciting, more attractive one comes along. This is the world of contractual faithfulness. We are called to live lives of covenant faithfulness as followers of Jesus Christ. If we do, and to the extent that we learn to, we will stand as a wonderful witness to a faithful God. We've talked about why marriages are failing We've talked about what makes Christian marriage different. Just a, a few moments thinking about how this church family could help marriages to succeed. Just two suggestions. First of all, let's continue to model faithfulness in our marriages. We might imagine that we learn how to be married by reading good books or going on courses. I, I think that's the smallest part of how we learn to be married. We learn what it is to be a, a married person by watching other married people. I know what faithfulness in a marriage looks like because I saw my mom and dad stay faithful to their marriage vows for as long as they both did live. We know what faithfulness looks like here in Hamilton Road because we, we see many couples around them. Uh, I'd love to pause at this point and get a few people to stand, but I don't know if I could do that without it being uh, difficult. But you know what I mean. We've got couples here who've been married for 40 years and 50 years and, and they've celebrated their 60th wedding anniversaries. Folks, can we stop being so infatuated with celebrity marriages and divorces and scandals? Why, why are we even giving that the time of day? The heroes are the gray heads and the bald heads who have gone for 50 and 60 and 70 years. They're the ones you should be looking to, emulating, asking, how did you do it? What did the Lord give you to help you? So folks, we help marriages to succeed by, by modeling and valuing faithfulness in marriage. A second way our church could help marriages to succeed is by learning and modeling faithfulness in every walk of life. What do I mean? I mean, if, if I'm learning to be faithful, full stop, I'll bring that faithfulness to my marriage. If I'm an unfaithful person, full stop, it'll be hard for me to be faithful in marriage. I learned a whole lot about faithfulness 
from a small cluster of retired people I met when I moved to East Belfast in 2003. I learned from them what it is to be faithful to a church, to a community of God's people. I'm thinking of a handful of men and women who stayed in Kirkpatrick Memorial when the grass looked greener everywhere else. They prayed for their church for decades while watching the community die before their very eyes. While others changed and moved on, while others traded up into more exciting congregations, they remained faithful. I, I am so grateful to God that he honored their faithfulness, that he blessed them with a, a church family once more. It's been a glorious, glorious thing to see. Folks, faithfulness can be costly in our marriages, in, right throughout our lives. But it's a glorious thing. And it's particularly glorious when it's our own little expression of the very faithfulness of God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love for a thousand generations. As I learn to follow him, I want to learn to keep my covenants for one or for two. Let's pray.